Imagine how difficult it would be to erase yourself completely from the internet. For some people, it might be easier than others, but for those living in a modern city, in a modern country, using the technologies that have become convenient every day, mainstream technologies, the chances that you wouldn't have at least some accounts to hunt down and delete, and some images to attempt to find and attempt to scrub from search engine results, and some pre-filled information stored in your browser's cache, and some information about you stored in friends' and relatives' email accounts are very low. It would take a real active effort to accomplish this, and more than likely at least a little legal coercion particularly if you want to delete images or information that has been published somewhere on a blog, on a social network, in a newspaper, and consequently on that newspaper's website or Twitter feed. And even then, and even with legal tools at your disposal, there is no guarantee of success. There are services like Delete Me that will contact the dozens of main info hoarding sites that will allow you to submit appeals and which will eventually, potentially, delete the information they have about you that reside in their specific collection of databases. But the internet isn't scribbled in easily erased graphite. It is scrawled in ink. And even if you manage to delete all the information you can find and remove yourself from every possible social network and move to Europe and demand that Google delete you from search results because they will actually do that there, and pull out as many of the roots of your online presence that you can possibly find, there's still a good chance that something out there will betray you and that there will be something that you missed. There is a good chance that there's a random note in a comment section that you visited once back in high school and the comment itself was not particularly memorable or interesting, but the username and metadata might be enough to prove that you were using a particular IP address from a particular region at a particular time in your life. You are also very likely featured in more than a few snapshots in the background of an Eiffel Tower selfie taken by excited tourists, maybe, or in the middle row of a forgotten birthday party scrum, captured and immortalized by well-meaning family members. These may not be images that you can find now, today, but the ever-improving capabilities of reverse image search engines and commonly available facial recognition software may reveal you lots of views all over the place. Where's Waldo like in the coming years? There may be a day sometime in the near future that we all wake up to find hundreds of new photos in our Facebook account just waiting for us newly discovered by the algorithms that Facebook and so many other technology companies have been building. And this is all to say that while you can control your conscious activities online, it's incredibly difficult to fully extract yourself from its sticky and exponentially expanding web. 
It could be argued that it's a fool's errand to even try, actually, based on the number of tendrils that the internet has dispersed across the entirety of modern society. But what I want to talk about today isn't attempting to extricate oneself from the internet, but rather being unwillingly and suddenly foisted from it. Because although it can sometimes be distracting or overwhelming to be a member of online society, it can also be crippling to be forcibly removed from it. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is brought to you by listeners like you. A huge thanks to everyone who has already contributed in some way, shape, or form. And a thank you in advance for anybody who's considering doing so. You can contribute directly monetarily. You can leave a review on iTunes. That helps quite a bit. You can tell your friends. You can tell your social network about it. All of these things help a great deal, and I very much appreciate it. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, that's LKT for Let's Know Things, you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook from their catalog of something like 200,000 audiobooks, whichever one you like for free. And that is yours to keep whether or not you end up sticking around after that free month. So audibletrial.com slash LKT, pretty good deal. And if you are short on book recommendations, I will make one for you at the end of this episode. So stick around for that. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. If you go to hostgator.com slash LKT, you will receive special prices that are made available for listeners of Let's Know Things. So if you're thinking about starting up a blog, starting up a portfolio site, starting up a website for your business, now is a great time to try that. Go to hostgator.com slash LKT to receive a substantial discount and to help support the show. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to start from today comes from the website Ars Technica, and it's entitled, Don't Mess With Google. Pixel phone scalpers get their accounts shut down. What this article addresses is a situation in which some clever scalpers, people who buy up goods, sometimes they're concert tickets, sometimes, as in this case, they are phones that have just been made available. They will buy up a great deal of them and then resell them at a profit. So it's making use of some type of arbitrage. They have some type of advantage in terms of procuring that item so that they can sell it at a markup and have that still be a worthwhile transaction for the person they end up selling it to. And so in this case, it looks like it was some type of tax thing that they were getting around and as a result able to profit. But the real point of the story is that this phone reseller, this company that was a loyal seller of Google goods, put a bunch of their customers in a very precarious position to the point where the people who purchased the goods through this reseller, making use of this arbitrage, had their accounts shut down by Google. And so these were people trying to buy a Google phone. The Pixel is the new Google phone. And they were trying to do it at a discount, and it ended up getting them banned from Google. 
So these people weren't thrown from the whole internet, of course, but they were locked out of their Google and Google-affiliated companies' accounts. And this is something that, on the surface, probably doesn't seem like a huge deal. Oh no, I can't search for things. I mean, that's, that is something that we tend to take for granted, but I guess in a pinch you, you could use one of the other Google competitors to do a search. But once you start thinking about it, and once you look at the catalog of what Google actually produces, then it starts to become clear why this is such a big deal. This one company created or owns a substantial number of the services that a huge chunk of the global population uses every single day. I personally use my Gmail inbox as my main hub for all of my various email addresses for my different projects. I use Google Photos to help me organize my collection of digital images and videos. I use Chrome as my main internet browser, and I publish video essays and other videos, my talks and such, on YouTube. This is in addition to the latent value of being considered relevant for certain keywords in search results, including my name and the name of this podcast. And so when somebody searches on Google, they search for Colin Wright, the first couple of pages, chances are, will be something about me and my projects because I rank according to their algorithm. That is another service that they provide. They create an ecosystem in which I can be more easily discovered, in addition to, as I mentioned before, being able to use a search bar to discover things. And that is tied into my Google Plus account, which helps tie together my diverse collection of properties around the internet in all of those videos and all of those other Google properties that I mentioned. And it verifies that I am real and that my official accounts are real and in fact owned by me, which increases the level of Google juice that I have, which means I go further up the rankings when people search for things related to me. And so that can seem like a lot of different Google properties that I'm using, but my usage of products from this company is actually relatively tame compared to a lot of other people in a lot of other industries. Many people I know, and I have as well in the past, use Google's Android operating system as their primary mobile phone OS. So their Google account is attached to everything in their phone and also allows them to access the Google Play Store, which is where they get their apps. And, you know, it's the thing that makes their phone operate correctly, it makes it a smartphone. I also know a whole lot of people who use Google Docs as their primary work software instead of something like Microsoft Office. And so they store all of their professional documents and spreadsheets and slideshows, along with their media files, their, their photographs and their movies and things of that nature, in Google Drive. There are people who use Google Music as their main music resource, and Google Wallet as their online bank account, and Blogger as their primary website. Blogger is owned by Google. And shockingly, that list of services still barely scratches the surface of all the companies and products and software owned and operated by Alphabet, which is the main holding company of Google and its business siblings. To be locked out of such an ecosystem, then, is not just a minor inconvenience. It could be the death knell for a person's social life and their bill-paying infrastructure, their means of earning an income, and their online portfolio, their body of work. It could mean that they're not able to access their email 
or that any emails that are sent to them will bounce back to the sender, and so they'll never know what it is that they missed. It could mean losing a lifetime of photos, a massive Rolodex full of contact info. You could even lose your medical history. Companies like Google, among them Amazon, Apple, Facebook, they have become something more than standard businesses in this regard. They've become, in many ways, a bit more like public utilities. You can get along without Snapchat or Netflix. Losing access to one of these accounts would suck, probably, but the impact would be limited to one very narrow aspect of your life. Losing access to your Facebook account, on the other hand, depending on how often you use it and what you use it for, could be tantamount to having your electricity go out or your phone line go dead, or at least back when people used landlines. That metaphor probably doesn't work quite so well today. It's like having your address book deleted and your photo album burned. It goes beyond just being a bummer. It's a potential catastrophe. This is something that I think about quite a bit because although I'm able to make money selling my books in bookstores and other places as well, a great deal of my income comes from one place, Amazon. And I enjoy Amazon's products, but I also tend to bang the drum for indie bookstores and and competitors to Amazon. And there's a chance that at some point, some mid-level manager or some algorithm could decide that that's not okay. They could decide that I have broken some rule that is hidden within their cavernous terms of service that nobody actually reads. And as a result, I would lose my major source of income. On top of losing access to the store where I get a great deal of the very specific niche items that I need to purchase, and losing access to potentially Audible, which in addition to sponsoring this show also provides me with the audiobooks that I am addicted to. And so this is something that I worry about, that at some point, either because of some regulation that I wasn't aware of, or because of some glitch within a software system, that I might be banned from the very system that I've come in a lot of ways to rely on. For someone like me, that would be the equivalent of, of like being escorted from my cubicle without a moment's notice and no time to collect my stuff, no time to set up another job. It would be devastating on a lot of levels. And so that type of thought process, imagining what the consequences would be of losing access to these things that a lot of us have come to take for granted, leads me to a next step, a next kind of logical progression along that disturbing thought process. Imagine for a moment what you would do if you weren't just booted from some corner of the internet, but if the internet itself ceased to be, if it no longer existed. And I'm not talking about the internet just flickering off for a few minutes or getting really slow or going out for a few hours but like disappearing, maybe gone forever. On the second day of no internet, how do you think you'd be doing based on how you spend your time and how you interact and what you do every day and where you get your entertainment and where you do your work and how you communicate? How do you think you would be doing two days in? What about five days in? Five days with no internet of any kind. And remember, everything on your phone, that's probably the internet. 
What about 30 days? What about a full month of no internet? That would mean a month without access to your email, to your social networks, no digital access to your bank accounts. The banks would also be unable to access a great deal of their systems. So there'd be no guarantees of even being able to access what you've saved if you can make it into a physical location. A lot of credit card processing is done online these days. That would not work either. How would your work change? How about your social life, your relationship with people? Would you even be able to connect with the friends you've made around town, not in your immediate walking vicinity, and around the country? How would you get in touch with them? How would you get in touch with the people that you know around the world? How would you reach out to them? How would you know if they were reaching out to you if all their contact info and your contact info for them was tucked away in the cloud? Would you have any access to the things that you've created, to your assets, to the entertainment mediums that you've come to rely on? Netflix, gone. Spotify, gone. All of those internet-connected apps, which is most of them, gone. I think about this a lot, actually, more than a person probably should, because it is kind of a disturbing thought. But anytime I've reached some kind of fork in the road, anytime I'm rethinking the direction that I'm headed, or the relationships that I have, or what I want to be doing, I try to remember not to become too overly reliant on one way of interacting and connecting and living. I make sure to back up my most vital work and to store things not just in the cloud, but there and on my computer, plus on another drive that I keep elsewhere. Try to make sure that my skills are not all huddled around the warm glow of the internet. Instead, that I have facets that are not at all reliant on any particular technology or resource. I try to make sure that I have skills and knowledge that would allow me to do things for a living, even if somehow I found myself back in the Stone Age. Terrifyingly, that is not a completely paranoid precaution. There is always the possibility that as a consequence of some conventional warfare situation between military powers, that large swaths of the internet could go down. The whole network would be tricky to knock out completely these days, the way that it's set up, but it would not be impossible for a nation like China or Russia, for example, to take out the majority of net nodes scattered around the United States, or vice versa, us to them. A scenario like this becomes even more likely if we consider that conventional warfare is less and less appealing every decade for a lot of different reasons, and that non-standard asymmetric combat is kind of the direction that we're going. It is all the rage right now, and it is a trend that does not show any sign of subsiding. And this doesn't just mean hacking other countries' power plants and electrical grids. It also means, conceivably, using EMPs, electromagnetic pulses, to fry their circuit boards, or using kinetic weaponry, that is, like big, dumb missiles that are built just to slam into things, to knock out GPS and other satellites, like the satellites that beam down the internet to 
remote places around the world, but also increasingly that fill in the gaps any place we have some type of network gap. So even if a war or a non-war but kind of a war-like scenario never emerges, there is still the chance that a massive solar flare could take out a chunk of our modern mesh. Coronal mass ejections, or CMEs, are flung outward from the sun fairly regularly, and each batch, each ejection, contains particles and electromagnetic fluctuations that can upset our GPS transmissions, or potentially render useless our satellite arrays. They could also blow up the transformers in our power grids and fry the circuitry in our gadgets. Back in 1859, the largest ever recorded CME, which is often called the Carrington Event, and you know if they give it a name, and particularly if they call it the Event with a capital E, some serious stuff went down. So in 1859, a solar flare flung a bunch of particles and electromagnetic havoc our way, and it was so big that it could be seen with the naked eye. That is atypical to be able to see as you look up at the sun, a coronal mass ejection, essentially a solar flare. The event wasn't fully understood at the time because we didn't really understand much about radiation and we hadn't even discovered x-rays or the ionosphere quite yet, but the CME did knock out parts of our newly installed U.S. telegraph network. And in doing so, as it knocked out that network, it also electrically shocked some of the telegraph operators and set fire to some of the machines that they were working. A massive solar superstorm, which is the actual official title for it, a solar superstorm of a much larger scale, shot out of the sun on July 23rd, 2012. And that one just barely missed Earth, thankfully. There is a lot of space out there, and the majority of these events do not lash toward us. In fact, it is unlikely that it would. We are very small. The sun is very big. That said, NASA estimates that there is a 12% chance of an event of similar scale actually hitting us sometime between now and 2022. And so it's not a huge chance, but I doubt you would get on a plane if you were told by the pilot that there was a 12% chance that, that plane would crash. Loss of connectivity, then, might be an eventuality worth considering beyond one's periodic ritualistic digital sabbaticals. It may be worth considering what you might do should you be forcibly rendered analog for a not insignificant period of time, like the period that might come after a CME or after some type of asymmetric warfare. But going back to the original story, it's not just mobile phone resellers who are under threat of having their access to this fount of valuable resources cut off. It's also far more criminal criminals. Prisoners are typically either cut off from the internet completely or cut off from a large swath of it. And their searches and everything else is then monitored, their interactions with their family, all monitored the same as their physical movements. And you don't even have to be in prison, in a physical building, to have your online activities limited. 
those who commit nonviolent crimes online, like fraud or hacking, they are often left out in the world, not put in prison, but they are only allowed to access the internet while under direct supervision, or in some cases they are banned from it completely. And they are not even allowed to use devices that can connect to the internet, which is difficult these days in the age where we have Wi-Fi in our toasters. But consider what this means for someone like this and their prospects moving forward. How many jobs today require employees to have a mobile phone or the ability to Google things? How many require a Facebook account or an email address? How many put their employee in direct contact with some facet of the internet all day long, whether it's a sales terminal that processes credit cards or a Slack chat room that keeps them connected to their coworkers? Beyond these concrete practicalities, imagine what it must be like to be imprisoned, say, in 2006, and then released in 2016. That is a decade, which is a very long time, but the pace of technological development seems to move even faster than real time these days. And so it's strange to think about today, but the original first-generation iPhone was not released until mid-2007. And so that was kind of the start of the mobile internet revolution. That was the start of the smartphone thing, the start of apps. So everything that has happened since then, the swerve from computers to smartphones, from windows to app stores, from paperback books to the Kindle, which is another device that was released in its first iteration in 2007, all of that would have happened while this person was in prison. So much of what is happening today is predicated on technologies that did not exist until just recently, or didn't become common until a handful of years ago. They are all descendants of things that came before, but that doesn't imply that someone who had used a room-sized punch card programmable computer would understand how to use an iPad, or what such a technology would mean for how the world is connected and how we work and interact and communicate and everything else today. Being banned from a company that sprawls across the modern world and everything that we do, like Google or Amazon or Facebook, can be a major setback. But being rendered internetless or internet handicapped is a much heavier burden to bear, limited in the way that a prisoner or a criminal would be limited. Even by paying close attention to the news, simply knowing about new technologies is not the same as participating in using them and in the culture that is evolving around them. Leaving prison after a long enough period of time would, in some ways, be like emerging from a cell to find that everyone around you suddenly speaks a new language that you do not speak. And you could maybe pick it up eventually, but while everyone else around you does it without thinking, they are more native to it, you would be forced to expend a great deal of your energy just struggling to understand the fundamentals and participate in a basic conversation. And that's the way that it is technologically and culturally for people who are kept outside of this system, outside of this global society 
that is tech-connected that we have built. Now think about that, and then consider that there are many people today who go way out of their way to avoid technology, at least for a time. Digital sabbaticals, where one goes sans smartphone for a day, or a weekend, or maybe as long as a month, these are increasingly common, particularly amongst people who use such devices so regularly that their smartphone can begin to feel like an all-consuming, time-gobbling black hole. There are also coffee shops and other such businesses where technology is banned, because in doing so, these locations create a space that is somewhat unique, or at least novel, in the modern world that we live in. It's a space devoid of constant connectivity, and that is unusual enough that some people will pay twice as much for a coffee in these types of locations than they would in a Wi-Fi-enabled Starbucks. Of course, it's much easier to enjoy such a space and such a situation when you know that once you've finished your coffee, you can hop back online and see who has emailed you since you last stepped away from the device. Very few people take such sabbaticals and then never go online again. Very few people shut their computer and never open it up from that point forward. It's very often the people who are most enthusiastic about going technology-less for a time that are most likely to preach about it on Medium or Twitter or their personal blog. This experience is valuable as a contrast, as a mental vacation, as a means of establishing or re-establishing balance in one's life. But if it were to be forever, the experience would probably be a lot less palatable, a lot less brag-worthy, for most people, anyway. Because just like prisoners who have lost their online access, a person who intentionally denies themselves a place at the species-wide digital table is someone who is immensely limiting their options and access. They are denying themselves up-to-date information about every topic they might ever need to know about, and connections with any person they might ever want to reach. They are sequestering themselves in a tiny nook and burning the ships behind them. This is no doubt a dream for some people, but for most of us, it would surely prove to be short-sighted. As much as we might romanticize the idea of simplifying and stepping away from it all forever, the benefits of being a part of that larger network are vast and myriad and difficult to ignore. It's one thing to say, I'm going to stop using all technology and take up woodworking as a profession, selling only to my local community and dealing only in cash. It's another thing entirely to decide that you will do that forever, and that all of your other skills and opportunities will disappear as you decide to never again speak the language everyone else is speaking, or visit the space where everyone else has agreed to meet, where everyone else has agreed to have that conversation that keeps us moving forward as a group. There's an old saying that I'm fond of, that those who do not read books have no advantage over those who cannot read them. Which is to say that not making use of the tools and knowledge available to you means that you end up no better informed or equipped 
than someone who doesn't have such tools and knowledge, who does not have those advantages. I tend to feel this way about technology and media literacy, that a shockingly large portion of the global population is ignorant about certain things, media and tech-related, and that if they were better informed about these things, they would gain immense powers. They would be able to achieve so much more of what they hope to achieve, and with a lot less effort expended. It's just that they haven't taken the time to understand these tools, or perhaps haven't even been introduced to them in a way that would make them likely to care, or to see them as valuable. The internet, along with all these other tools, has created a sort of structural imbalance in favor of the people who understand it and see it as valuable those who are fluent in it. This provides advantages to anyone who either takes the time to understand or is born into a situation where they have no choice but to understand these tools. And as they are tools that allow us to essentially perform magic, for all intents and purposes, as I discussed in a past episode, these people then have what amount to superpowers in a world where the majority of people do not have those powers. The tech elite, then, do not only benefit because of certain economic systems that bend in their favor, but because that which they're so familiar with underpins essentially every bit of infrastructure, every system, and every valuable thing in the world today. As we wrap the world in silicon and fiber optic cables, We also tether ourselves to these imperfect meshes and nodes and become dependent on these digital worlds that we've built and the technological oases that have always sprung up over the years. We are in big trouble if these oases ever dry up and stop flowering. And those who are most tapped into these resources are the most dependent on them. And as such, would be the most crippled by a military strike or a solar flare that takes out the electrical grid or fries a collection of vital chipsets. Our digital lives are entangled with our real-world lives, and it's those points where they overlap, which is an increasing percentage of them, by the way, the places where the digital world and the real world overlap. Those are the most prone to upset or attack or even just simple malfunction. Imagine how horrible it would be to have your online identities hacked and stolen, and how much worse it would be if those identities were connected to your bank account, your social security number, your home address, and everything else about you. If those details could then be very easily connected to photos of you and your loved ones. Horrible, then, because of these connections, can very quickly become a debilitating travesty And it is because of these very same conveniences that we enjoy. The things that give us our power are also what renders us vulnerable to this kryptonite. This is something worth thinking about, both in establishing where your ideal balance is between these worlds and how they overlap, and in determining how the purveyors of these conveniences and the governments that regulate them should behave as a result of their increasing interconnectedness with essentially every aspect of our lives.
Another great big thanks to everyone who has already contributed to the show. I truly appreciate those monetary contributions and the sharing of the show with your friends and social networks and the reviews that you've been leaving on iTunes. That is all very, very helpful, and I truly appreciate it. And a great big thanks in advance to anyone who is thinking of doing the same. You guys kick a lot of butt. If you've never stopped by before, consider checking out letsknowthings.com. There you will find show notes for this episode and every episode of the show. They are quite copious and geeky, and you might enjoy them. This episode was brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I use for all of my online needs, including hosting the aforementioned letsknowthings.com. They are wonderful to deal with, and they have excellent prices. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, those prices become even more wonderful. Hostgator.com LKT, if you are thinking of doing anything web-related. And this episode is also brought to you by Audible. I listen to a whole lot of audiobooks. I hope the internet doesn't go down because that would totally crush some of my more enjoyable daily habits, some of which revolve around listening to audiobooks. If you have not yet hopped on the audiobook bandwagon, believe me, it is something that will suck you in. They are like very long podcasts, essentially. And if you go to audibletrial.com LKT, You can test it all out. You get a free month of Audible and all that entails, plus a free audiobook of your choice that is yours to keep, whether or not you stick with Audible after that free month. And if you do not already have something in mind to spend that Audible credit on, might I suggest The Shallows, subtitle, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, by Nicholas Carr. And this book is predicated on the idea that our brain is shaped in part, at least, by the tools that we use to interact with and explore the world. And the internet itself is an extension of all of these other tools. It's not substantially different than a newspaper or a book. All of these things shape the way that we think. But the internet does incentivize us to think more broadly, but a lot less deeply about the information that we consume. And so this book talks about the consequences of that, the why and the how, and a bunch of other things related to that topic. So if you care to, check out The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. You can pick this up at the library, your local indie bookstore. You can get it for your Kindle, your Kobo. Or if you like, you can go to audibletrial.com LKT and snag a free copy of it off of Audible. In addition to letsnotethings.com, you might also check out my blog, exilelifestyle.com. That's where I do a whole lot of my essay writing. You can also sign up for my personal newsletter there, which is separate from the Let's Know Things newsletter. The Let's Know Things newsletter is a collection of links that goes out every week, and my personal newsletter is a collection of information about my projects and an essay that goes out every two weeks. So you can find that at exilelifestyle.com. You can find a complete list of my books that I've written and other information about me and what I'm up to at colin.io. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the social internet at Colin is my name. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on Instagram or Twitter or wherever you tend to hang out most frequently. And you can also find Let's Note Things on a couple of those networks, primarily Twitter and Instagram and Facebook right now. And you can find that at Let's Know Things. 
Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.